Welcome to the Property CEO Podcast, your inside track to the world of property with your hosts, Ian Child and Richie Clapson. Hello and welcome to the Property CEO Podcast. My name's Ian Child and I'm here with Richie Clapson. Hello everyone. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the key differences between planning permission and a really useful thing called permitted development, which can make life as a property developer a lot easier, aren't we, Richie? That's right. We're going to be uh, shedding some light on both of them and uh, showing you how you can seriously de-risk things uh, by going down the permitted development route. Fantastic. Well, that should be uh, pretty exciting. So what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been looking forward to you getting back from your fishing trip. Oh, that's very, very nice of you. But I don't, to be honest, I don't recall you being particularly emotional when I got back. Did you, uh, did you miss me? I mean, I was only away for a week. Actually, I was very emotional when you got back. Ah, and uh, and why was that? Well, I'd had a, I'd had a little side bet on on how many fish you catch, and uh, and and I'd won. Uh, right. Uh, how did I know you were going to bring that up? So, uh, do you want to tell everyone uh, where you've been? No. <laughs> okay, so I will then. So basically, you you went uh, salmon fishing up in uh, Scotlandshire for a whole week, didn't you? Scotlandshire. So. Yes, you, you don't you don't go up north that often, do you? No. I can tell. Uh, and and uh, whilst you were away, uh, exactly how many salmon did you happen to catch? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I seem to recall it was a nice round number, wasn't it? Um, I mean, now let me think. Uh, I definitely remember it ended with a zero. Right. Oh, uh, yes, and that's right. Of course, it uh, it started with a zero as well. <laughs> In fact, you managed to catch a grand total of zero fish, didn't you? Well, to be fair, I did hook one, but it fell off. <laughs> you probably had a sense of pride and didn't want to get reeled in by a complete novice. I mean, what would all the other salmon think? Well, yeah, I don't actually think the fish are kind of queuing up there and thinking about the, the fisherman's technique and then, you know, they decide to stay on the line if it's really good. <laughs> but you have to say it's embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, how can you go on a fishing trip and then catch precisely no fish? Well, there you go. You see, you're falling into that, that trap. It's because it's called a fishing trip. If you were guaranteed to catch fish, then it would be called a catching trip, wouldn't it? So, and you know... Thinking about it, I reckon this highlights one of the fundamental differences between you and me. Oh, no, 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 no. On the contrary. I think it highlights our similarities. I mean, I spent three days in the office, one day on a building site and two and a half days driving around in Hampshire in the car. Do you know? And I managed to catch exactly the same number of salmon (laughs) as you did. You see, we're exactly the same. And, and in fact, not only was I able to match your fishing skills, I managed to get some work done at the same time. Okay, okay. Let me explain. You see, fishing is like cricket. Okay, I don't do either of those, uh, but uh, even I know that fishing isn't like cricket. So unless you're you know, going to use a bat rather than a fishing rod, uh, <laughs> in which case that might explain why you didn't catch any fish. Now, hear me out. It's, it's all about finesse and oh. and subtlety you know two words that you possibly might not have heard people mention in the context of your good self you see you like things that are how can i put it blunt and and things that have a, a tangible result whereas fishing and cricket they're just done purely for the love of the sport uh, no utter rubbish 
Utter rubbish. <laughs> You're just trying to get out of a completely embarrassing fact that you didn't catch anything. Mm. I mean, anyway, I know there was a whole group of you uh, that went, so, so how did the others do? Come on. Well, uh, to be fair, most of the others caught nothing as well. Okay, so you've uh, you've been giving them lessons, have you? <laughs> and I, I got hold on a sec, hold on a sec. What do you mean, most of them? Are you saying that someone in your group actually caught a fish? Um, yes, I am. Okay, so how many fish did they catch? Uh, four. Oh, it gets better. So let's have a quick recap to make sure I've got this absolutely straight. Six of you went fishing. Yep. Five of you might as well stayed in the pub, <laughs> and one of you caught four fish. Yep. So was he standing in the same place and just catching the same one? Or you know, did he forget to take it off the hook? I mean, I know, I know his fish have short memories, but uh, that's got to be quite a stupid salmon. I mean, it simply jumps back on the hook three times. No, no, definitely four completely different fish. Okay, so let's have a think about what that tells us. So either he just happened to be standing in the right place on four separate occasions. It could happen. Or, or maybe uh, you're just rubbish at fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps likely. you should have been paying to you know, a bit more attention to see what he did. Anyway, anyway, it was a fantastic trip. Thanks so much for asking. <laughs> Superb company. You're welcome. Uh, lovely scenery, great food, great drink. Uh, plus... It was extremely nice to be away from the small annoyances at work. Look, I'll let that slide, okay? But uh, you know, you you need to look on the upside. You know, What's there's that, a then? chance you may get recognised for your services to salmon preservation. Do you know, I think you've milked my salmon exploits enough, or lack of salmon. <laughs> so, what exactly have you been up to in my absence? Making a nuisance of yourself, presumably? Actually, I couldn't help noticing. When I came back, there was something, I don't know, something in your office that looked a little different. Really? Hmm. Was it because I'd, I'd had a blitz on the filing whilst you are away? You're kidding. That's what your office looks like after you've done the filing. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that. It was, it was way, way more subtle. Okay, okay, you've lost me. So what looked different? Well, I couldn't help noticing that your famous and much lauded uh, Lenovo laptop has changed colour. Oh, that, yes. And if I'm not much yes. mistaken, it's got a bit bigger as well. Well, it may have put on a few pounds uh, or so whilst uh, whilst you're away. I mean, to be fair, not unlike yourself <laughs> and how you've come to mention it. <laughs> oh, thanks. And bizarrely, it seems to have changed its name from Lenovo to HP. HP. So is it fair to say that you finally uh, bit the bullet, you've been persuaded to ditch your antique laptop and buy a decent oh, one instead. Oh, come on, come on. Look, I won't have a bad word said about my little Lenovo. Oh. It served me very well over the years. Yeah, exactly. How many years would that be? Sort of 30? No, no, no. Not, not, not quite that long. But unfortunately, our IT guy said that he discovered a terminal problem with it. Ah, now would this be the same terminal problem that uh, that, that man at the video production company mentioned when he pointed at it and laughed? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember vividly, and I found him to be a very rude man. <laughs> but to be fair, he did have a point. If I remember rightly, you asked him whether your Lenovo would be good for editing <laughs> video footage, and he said it would be better used as a <laughs> yeah. clapperboard. Yeah, and then you said that I could always use it as a booster seat, which frankly left me completely <laughs> undermined. You two just laughing at me at my expense. Oh, it was highly embarrassing. Yeah, I'm sorry. We were, we, were, we were laughing with you and not at you. We... We just laughed a bit earlier than you did, that's all. Our IT guy said it reminded him of the uh, of the ZX Spectrum. Blimey, he's shown his age. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, I thought, painful as it is, I needed to take the plunge. So uh, I went out and got myself a new one. Well, here's a question, though. Can this new one do all the things that you use the old one for? You know, 
auto trader, Super Mario Karts, and uh, you know, keeping doors wedged open. Yes, it can do all those essential things plus more size, Ooh. and and it's in a very sexy dark grey colour, so it looks the part too. You know, I did notice that it was quite a good looking number. Have you uh, have you worked out how to use it yet? No, not a clue. <laughs> I, I can right. switch it on, and that's about it. But, uh, you know, I've only had it about a week or so, so early days, early days. Okay, so uh, it always takes you quite a while to get to grips with a, with a new machine, does it? I mean, a little while. I mean, maybe a few months, but, I mean, that's quite normal, isn't it? Yeah, 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 uh, particularly with uh, with dark grey laptops. Yeah, very, very <laughs> common. <laughs> that's what I thought. Look, anyway, we didn't come here to talk about fishing and laptops, did we? Well, I didn't, if, no, I'm, no, honest, exactly. if I'm honest. So come on, let's crack on with the show. Today, okay. I wanted to take a, a look at planning permission and permitted development and explain maybe sort of the key differences uh, and then see how we can take advantage of that knowledge to make developing property uh, in a whole lot quicker and, of course, indeed, less risky. Sounds fantastic. Okay, so where should we start on that? Let's just talk about uh, the, the you know, planning applications, first of all, and the, the planning application process, because um, for me, it's, it's all about risk and, and control. So uh, trying to understand planning applications, uh, it, you know, you've, you've got to... You've got to go through this process where you pass control to others, and that's what I don't like as a developer. So, you know, most experienced developers will tell you that uh, delays associated with gaining planning permission can be, you know, extremely costly and extremely frustrating because, you know, you with the best one in the world, you're trying to maximise what you can get out of a site. You're trying to push the boundaries a little. And that's what we've got to do as developers because, you know, we purchased this site. Or we, we've thought a bit out of the box. We've got to be a bit creative. Uh, and now you're going to push those boundaries a little bit. Of course, you've got to communicate something to the planners and you've got to get the planning authorities to come and sign that off. Now, if they don't sign it off and don't approve it, you can't move forward. Now, we're going to talk about permitted development rights in a minute, but there's far less control that the planners have over that process. Now, you know, ordinarily, there are set times around this. So in theory, you can put, uh, you know, a, a fairly ordinary application in and it should take no more than eight weeks. Uh, a major application shouldn't take any more than 13 weeks. Those are statutory and this times. Is, this is for pl- uh, full planning permission? For full planning, yeah, absolutely. So full planning permission has statutory time limits that are, that are there, the 13 and the eight-week process. And, you know, some projects do perfectly follow that pattern. You know, you can put all your documentation in. We'll talk about what sort of documentation you need in a minute. You can put all that in, and within either the sort of eight weeks or the 13 weeks, as I say, if it's a, if it's a bit of more of a major application, you can get your approval back with maybe some conditions. And conditions are, are normally relatively straightforward to deal with. But, of course, that's not always the case. You know, you can get partway through that eight-week process or the 13-week process, and uh, the, uh, the planning authority asks for further information. Or you get a refusal based on the lack of information that you sent in. So now you've got to go back and pull together more information and go back in and go through this process again. So, you know, you are uh, left a little bit under the control of the planners. Now, you know, planners are only supposed to assess what you do in accordance with local development plans. You know, the decision, and this is a, there's a quote, I think it's something like, the decision must be taken in accordance with the development plan. That's part of a, a, a you know, the, the, the route that they have to go down. They can't, in theory they can't, they can't make a decision to refuse your, your application on the basis they don't like you 
on the basis they don't know you, or even on the basis they just don't like the scheme. Their, their decision, and a lot of people don't understand that, a lot of people think actually the planners themselves, the individual planning uh, consultants or the planning officer you know, in the local authority, uh, just has to decide whether they like it or not. No, it's not a personal opinion. And I think that's a common myth. Um, it maybe sometimes feels that that's what's happening, but actually, no, it shouldn't be. They have to go back to the plans that the local authority have set. So each local authority will set down its development plan, and they might be uh, neighbourhood plans, local plans, and you can look all this stuff up. So you can go onto your local uh, local council site, you can type in and look for local plans or neighbourhood plans, and it will tell you what they uh, propose to do going forward. These are quite far-reaching plans, so they look ahead quite a number of years and they look at the development of a whole town or a whole village or a whole county and describe what they want to do. Really powerful stuff because what it will tell you, it will tell you how they want to you know, regenerate areas, develop areas. And so what you don't want to do is fly completely in the face of that because clearly you're not going to get something through. So if you put a planning application in, expect it to come back in eight or 12 weeks' time, and actually you're putting an application into, uh, I don't know, put an HMO... Uh, into an area of uh, w- w- you know which currently is is highly you know family orientated residential orientated and actually if you then subsequently look at the, the local local plan local development plan and it says they are actually now capping the amount of hmos in the area because they want that area to retain a, a family image then you're not going to get an hmo in there so you know you just want to read those plans beforehand and again you'll find certain things like um, certain areas, particularly this happens in a lot of areas, they, they want to regenerate some of the commercial areas and move them out of town. Of course, yes. And we, we talk a lot about you know, light industrial and yeah. permitted development. I'll touch on that today as an example. But um, you know, there's a lot of industrial units, light industrial units particularly, which the uh, local plans want those moved out. I mean, uh, there's, a, there's a local town near, near our office, uh, and we were chatting the other week, weren't we, with some of our elites, and there is part of the local plan the, the council want to shift over the next few years a whole industrial area out of that town and put it with another industrial area at the other end of the town. Now, that, that actually is a great opportunity because you can go into that area, understand that there are industrial sites that actually, if you're prepared to go down the planning route, the council are going to look favourably in turning that industrial site into residential. And I think the other advantage of doing stuff like that in accordance with a plan that's already existing is that they, they're normally reasonably prescriptive on some of the other things that they, they're going to they're gonna require consideration, like parking, like access and so on. So you can get a good steer from those sort of documents, can't you? They will, yeah. And as I say, but, you know, but by contrast, if an area uh, in, the council, in, the, in the local council area has said, we're going we're gonna to regenerate this and, and build this industrial park up, don't expect to go for a change of use from an industrial unit into residential. Yeah. Apart from the fact you wouldn't easily better sell it, <laughs> but actually, you know, pay attention to to those local plans because they say they will help you, um, and and hopefully not hinder you. But of course, if you don't look at them, you don't know. Now, your planning consultant should do that. I'm not expecting you necessarily to dive on there as a, as a new developer, um, but you know, good experience to do so if you have the time. But a good planning consultant will know in your area the local plans. But if we go back to this point about handing over control, with a full planning application, you've got to often submit a lot of information. So, you know, you're going to submit your normal drawings, your details uh, of, of what the scheme is you're going to put together. But quite often, there's a whole series of specialist reports that, that they're going to ask for. 
along with the planning drawings. You know, they might want a, a full uh, design and access statement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how do we get in the building? These are sort of disabled access routes. How do they work? How does this happen? What about car parking? They might want a whole assessment on uh, on traffic impact and, and turning circles. You know, what do you do? What is your site? How does it affect the local area? How do you actually get vehicles in and turn them around? How does the dust truck come in and collect the rubbish? How does a fire engine get in? Now, all these things are entirely possible, but of course, what you're going to have to do is employ employ a series of additional consultants, a traffic specialist to model those sort of things. Maybe your traffic specialist is going to actually have to take on board a traffic study, a traffic survey Mm -hmm. to look at traffic flow in the area. Sometimes we see these people sat on the side of junctions with clipboards in cars and it says traffic survey. That's the sort of thing. Of course, all this is money and it's time. So if the council come back whilst your application's in and say, yeah, no, we actually need a traffic study done, you've got to commission this, you've got to get it done. That traffic study might have to be done over a month's period so they they can see the changes over that month. It's certainly not going to be done over just one day, very unlikely. So you've got to get that all commissioned, you've got to get that report back, and then, of course, that report's going to tell you whether there potentially is a problem, which the council might have been a little bit of foresight thinking there would be, in which case you then got to address it. So you've got to get a number of consultants in just to do things like that. It could be simple things like tree surveys. They might request a tree survey, even if there's not TPOs, tree protection orders on trees. They might want to know what you're doing with the local trees. Travel plan, that sort of goes hand in hand with the traffic assessment. But if you're actually proposing uh, a flatted scheme, for example, with not a lot of parking, you're going to have to put together a travel plan of, of what's in the area, what the sort of bus availability is, the trains, etc. Is there cycle routes? All those sort of things need to go in there as well. So there's quite a lot that the council can come back and request. A common one, uh, particularly with new builds, if you're putting a new build site in, so whether that's a brownfield land or uh, you know a, a green area, so it's an, an undeveloped land, they're often going to ask for ground investigations before they actually take it through. It could be a condition. Sometimes that come back that comes back as a condition, and that's fine because from a timing point of view, you can deal with that yeah, afterwards. Yeah. Occasionally, they can ask for that beforehand. Particularly, let's say you're you know you're demolishing an existing building, a brownfield land, and you're going to take away the building. They might want a contamination assessment to know what the state of that is and how you're going to deal with it before they grant you the permission. So you can see, you know, the problem here, it, it, my issue that, that, that you're handing over this, this control, that they could come back with you know, further information. Now, some people might say, yeah, but surely your planning consultant will know what they want. Well, it's very easy for a planning consultant to say, yeah, okay, you want to provide these 20 reports mm. and we know we're covered off. Yeah. But that's not, that's not a good job of a planning consultant to do that because that's just actually covering every, every base when you might not need to and you're spending a huge amount of money. Yeah. So a planning consultant is going to try and advise you uh, of what they think you do need because they're sometimes going to get caught out with the council coming back. And so whilst I say, you know, it, they should uh, actually only review your, your application on the basis of the local plan and so on, um, there is sometimes an interpretation of this. Yes. So there's a local plan which says X, Y, and Z. Your planning consultant's interpretation of that might have been one way, but actually the council's interpretation is another so, way. Yeah. Now, that sometimes is a process where, okay, you've got to go back in on an appeal. But an appeal is not quick. So again, you know, you, you, you're going to go back. And what will happen there, if you actually go for a full appeal and another planning officer from another county comes in, 
they they definitely have no emotional attachment to it and they will only look at it to see whether the application and the refusal if that was was given is is actually based totally on uh, the development plans so have, has the councillor, the, the, the planning officer, looked at the local development plans and refused it on the basis that it doesn't comply with Section 3, 4, 5, 1, whatever it is yeah. of the local development plan? If that's the case, then they will they will uphold the refusal. If, they, if the council has been um, emotionally attached to it and said, no, no, you can't have that because you're, you're building next door to my brother-in-law's house, <laughs> uh, that will get caught out. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, from a developer's point of view, whilst you might get the end result, that's a whole load of time. It is, of course it is. And when you hear stories of some planning sagas continuing for, well, for years, uh, and of course another thing that can happen is that you think things are progressing nicely and we're getting to the end of, for example, you know, the time period, and then out comes a request for another couple of reports. And then the yeah. clock stops and then you back you go. Another one, which I know that you're keen on, is that... If you muck up your application, if you don't put all of the information that you need in the application, then there is absolutely nothing to stop the council responding a day before the deadline and saying it's incomplete, start again. Yeah. I mean, the problem is that, that all these authorities, and, and, you know, I feel for them in a way, um, I feel for the planners, hey, uh, but they, they, they're under huge pressure. You know, they're, a, a lot of them have got, uh, you know, budget pressures. And so you've got a lot of these planning officers with a huge pile of, of applications coming in. Now, unless you make that application straightforward and easy, um, it's very simple for them to hit targets to give you, as you say, a refusal mm. uh, for inadequate information on the last day before. Now, okay, whilst that might not be fair, that might not be reasonable because you've not made their life easy. Yeah. So I think one of the things we'd always say is, you know, use a, a, an architect who, who's very good, and some architects are very good at putting in planning applications, some aren't, so, you know, check with your architect, or a good planning consultant and get them to submit for you. You know, you can do your own forms, but unless you're an experienced developer, I wouldn't. You know, I'd, I'd put the forms and the application and, and, and un, the understanding of the requirements of what reports or additional you know, design and access statements or ground contamination investigations that you need. Ask for, ask for your planning consultant or your architect what it is, in their opinion, that you definitely need. So you get the best shot of getting that application through. Fantastic. So, so that's planning permission. Uh, we talked earlier about permitted development as being a bit of a secret weapon. Do you want to just explain what permitted development rights are? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not secret in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's out there. But of course, still a lot of people don't understand it. But I think the important thing is just understanding what it really, really does for you. So permitted development rights um, are, are rights that are given to potential developers. So developers like us, new developers, existing developers out there, uh, to go and do something uh, without a full application process. So there are various permitted development rights. That's why I say go and do something. And the rights are there to try and speed up the development process. I mean, there is a massive housing shortage in this country, uh, and that's going to be many, many years before that is is satisfied. And the government were well aware that there is a big backlog and a, and a quite a slog to get through the actual full planning process. So they decided to take certain developments and put them into this category of permitted development rights because they felt certain developments were not going to be that controversial in, in going through. So, yeah, you're not, you don't have permitted development rights to go and build a brand new signature building on the corner of a main high street. No, of course you're not going to. That's going to rightly so be under the control of the planners to make sure it fits in with what you're trying to do. 
but these permitted development rights um, they 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 exist around some of the sort of the simpler end on the domestic market if you like so under permitted development rights you can build certain extensions on your own home uh, on a residential property with absolutely no permission at all you don't even have to apply for it you can just basically do it just build it within yeah. certain rules and again best to get an architect a good architect or planning consultant to confirm that what you want mm-hmm. to do is correct that then extends to there's other things that you can do with an application albeit it's what's called a prior notification so it's a much simpler application and some people call it prior approval as well don't they They do yeah absolutely so but basically it's an application process but there is still uh, behind it uh, a, a right for you to do it subject to a few certain rules under a full planning application, you have no rights. You know, you have to submit and then you have to make sure you comply with, with as we say, the local plan. So these permitted development rights, they're aimed to speed the whole process up. And what I love about them is it doesn't, it doesn't put the control of your development into the hands of someone else, i.e. a planning uh, officer. It gives the, the control largely back to you. Even though uh, when we're talking about development, so moving up the sort of permitted development tree, if you like, to the slightly bigger things, and let's just talk about uh, for today development uh, of uh, maybe a, an office uh, to residential, a commercial conversion, or uh, an industrial unit to residential and industrial conversion. The big thing that you'd have to go for with planning before these rights were put into a place, you'd have to go in for a change of use. You'd have to apply for the residential use from the commercial to be granted. And if that didn't tie up with the local plan because they didn't want residential in this area, you'd have a whole host of other hoops to jump through. Whereas the permitted development rights automatically give you that right, subject to a a few things, and we're going to come on to those in a minute. But so pretty much you've got that right already covered off. Now, one thing that that does come up, and a lot of people don't understand this, and I'm just going to briefly mention it today so you remember it, is the permitted development rights is for the change of use. It doesn't give you the ability to go and just change what you want on the appearance of a building. So you can't change an office to residential and then change all the facade, the cladding on the outside and put you know whatever you want up or change the roof. No, you can't. You have to go for a planning permission for the change of the elevations. If, for instance, on an industrial building, you know, quite often you need to put windows in these things because mm-hmm. there aren't many windows or, or change, change the roofscape a bit to put a courtyard in, which is one of the things that we talk about quite a lot. You'd have to go for a planning permission to do that. But that and that is a, a normal eight-week planning process. But because that's not normally controversial, that's not normally out of your control because that's a fairly straightforward process because you've already got the, the major decision, which is the change of use granted automatically by these permitted development rights. So what I like about these is, as I say, the control is back in your hands from a number of fronts. One is that that right is automatically going to be granted. And the great thing about permitted development rights and prior notification is you put this application in. If after 56 days you don't get a response, you automatically have the right to go and build. Now, there are, you know, just clarify that with your planning consultant because there's sometimes a few little quirks around that. But that's great for us as a developer. Time is money and time's mm. important. So we know providing our, our, our consultants, our planning consultants, our architects have advised us, yes, you've ticked all those boxes and I'm going to tell you the sort of four key boxes you've got to tick. Um, you're automatically going to have that right. You can then carry on. It doesn't give you the right to do the external elevation changes. You're still going to go through with that. But normally they, they, they can go through fairly uninterrupted. Um, you, know, you know and you can plan ahead. 
so you can start getting contractors on board. You can start getting them mobilised and ready because once the 56-day time comes, you've, you, you know, you've either got your yes or you've got this ability to carry on. Now, uh, you know, the, the, the things that you've got to comply with, uh, and, and let's just use industrial conversion uh, permitted development rights to start for, you know, for today. There are different, different requirements for different PD rights, but there's four basic requirements that you have to satisfy to get your permitted development rights through on an industrial conversion. That's converting an industrial building to residential. One is uh, you, you've, you've actually got to, uh, you know, uh, apply and satisfy any transport and highways impact of the development. So does the redevelopment of this industrial building to this residential scheme have an impact on the highways? Does it generate a load of extra traffic in the area? Does it generate a load of parking problems? Does it? Do... So you've got to satisfy that. Now, uh, you know, won't go into that in detail today, but more often than not, a planning consultant can work with you on that to justify that actually... In simple terms, it was an industrial building that employed 10 staff, had 10 cars, they must have parked somewhere, uh, and actually now there's a flatted scheme and we've only got 10 flats, so we only need 10 parking spaces. It's that type of approach that one can put to it. Of course, you know, not, uh, you know, except for the fact you can actually have parking on site on these schemes. You can still get a limited amount of parking. So transport and highways impact is one. Contamination risks is the second one. So you have to put a statement in to confirm that there are no contamination risks. And normally providing that statement is fairly comprehensive. So it's not just someone says, no, there aren't any. There aren't any because, you know, we know Mm -hmm. the previous use of the building was X, Y, and Z, and there were no heavy contaminants used, or we've had an inspection carried out by our, you know, so-and-so engineers. That normally satisfies that. There is a flood risk requirement. That's the third one. Well, that's a process that uh, your architect or your planning consultant can do. They can determine whether the building's in a flood risk zone. Now, if it is, you're going to have to do something about it. If it isn't, you can automatically tick that box. So that's a very simple statement process. The fourth uh, a requirement is, is, slight, is slightly vague, uh, but it's all about uh, change of use of the building and its impact on the sustainability of services or jobs in the area. That's basically what it's about. Yeah. So... Councils are very uh, are very concerned, and rightly so, about losses of jobs within the area, loss of industry in area. So it's a bit like you've heard the term, you know, losing the last pub in the village, and that's fair enough. The communities don't want to do that because it loses the heart of the community. What the councils don't want is to erode away industrial use within a town because that brings jobs to the town and brings wealth. So you've got to prove that actually you converting this industrial building into residential is not a problem. Well, in simple terms, you know, if this building is is available and it's on the market and no one else is really taking it for industrial use, and in fact, and as there often is these days, there's a lot of other industrial buildings available, you can quite often satisfy this need that actually there's plenty of, of, of square footage available for industry to go into. This building is not crucial to that requirement. And it's fair to say here that your planning consultant is your friend, really, because yes. uh, ultimately they are going to be the ones that are making sure that these four boxes are ticked and they'll be able to give their view on it and so when you go in for that prior approval it's only these four things that the council is effectively judging the application against and so if your planning consultant is uh, is is comfortable with the position then you're going to be in a, you're likely to be in a very good place aren't you that's it yeah a good planning consultant or I say a good architect uh, if they're advising you yes you can tick these boxes you're pretty certain you're going to get this through so this this permitted development rights compared to the planning I just think it's great. You know, you're, you're going to go forward on this basis. You're going to get in 
uh, a scheme, you know, you're going to get less risk, you're going to get less problems. Often there's less capital required because, you know, you're not having to draw this time scale out, hold this building for an issue for, for some time. So overall, you know, you're probably quicker to complete the whole project, I think, with a permitted development route. And I'd, and I'd say really, you know, here at Property CEO, we, we certainly always recommend if it's for your first project, do a permitted development scheme. Don't go down the planning scheme. You get a bit more comfortable, you get a bit more experience, then that, that's fine. But you just need a little bit of money behind you and, 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 you know, this ability just to take this along. There's some great schemes out there where you can go for planning and get through, but you just got to expect it a, bit, a, bit, a little bit quicker. And, you know, as a developer, whilst we can draw some development management through through the project, our big lump sum comes at the end. And if you're starting out as, as a developer, you're new and, and you know, a lot of the new developers we train, we say go for a permitted development scheme. Because then you're going you're gonna to get your learnings and your experiences much greater. You've got far less risk and pretty much all the control is in your hands. And I think that's important. And the other part of it, of course, is with the conversions, you're generally not going into the ground. So you, a lot of your, you've got much more certainty uh, and you're dealing with a structure that's already built. So. Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, with an industrial conversion or commercial conversion, you're not going into the ground. And most developers will tell you going into the ground is a problem but of course you know you can have a planning scheme where you can uh, convert and not go into the ground but it's it, i think the the fundamental thing about this discussion today really is is putting the control in the hands of someone else yeah. going a full planning route you do that go and permit a development rights you, you don't and and i think as a sum up for me is uh, you know why take those risks if you don't have to fantastic well i think for me the three key takeaways i think one was that a, a recognition that planning can take years. Uh, it's, there's no guarantees, even though there are some recommended and suggested uh, timelines. Uh, whereas for permitted development, you've got that much much quicker, much more certainty. Uh, the second one is making sure that you uh, you submit all of the required information because we have seen that situation before where people are such a hurry to get the application in that they miss bits and then guess what the council is not in a hurry because they've got a backlog and then it just pops back uh, and you've got to do it all over again and and then finally that point about the planning consultant i think maybe some people might not be aware that planning consultants exist this isn't something that you have to do on your own uh, or you have to plow through the uh, don't do it on your own don't know absolutely use a planning consultant find a good one and they will help guide you through with this uh, with that type of project fantastic richie thank you so much for that i'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this episode join us again next time when we'll be giving you the inside track on yet another part of the property world in the meantime Please feel free to check out our other episodes. And of course, you can visit our website, which is at propertyceo.co.uk. But until next time, it's goodbye from us both. Goodbye.